a teenage wedding and the old folks wished him well. You could see that Pierre did truly love the mademoiselle. And now the young monsieur and madame have rung the chapel bell. C'est la vie, c'est the old folks, it goes to show you never can tell. Matthew Dimmick, welcome to Labor Wave Radio. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to get into this conversation. You're a professor of law at the University of Buffalo. And recently, you've written a few different things across the uh, webosphere. Most recently, I encountered your article writing a response to an argument about the Wagner Act, initially penned by Eric Blanc. So I think our listeners, you know, I don't want to speak for all of our listeners, but I imagine most of them are pretty familiar with my opinions about labor law and will know that I'm purposely bringing you on to like really attack it. Um, But before digging right into the details, let me kind of set up the argument as I understand it presented by Eric Blanc and then allow you to respond to that. But in his uh, substack, Eric Blanc made this, I think, kind of strange defense of the Wagner Act, basically saying, There's this camp of folks, labor lefty militants, and their understanding of the Wagner Act is that initially what brought it into being was a mass scale worker insurgency. And because of that, people scrambled to pass this bill in order to limit and constrain the powers of an increasingly militant labor movement. So he says, one, that's wrong. In fact, it wasn't just worker insurgency, but worker insurgency and like government friendlies came together to enable this act to come into existence. That's one piece of his argument. And then the other piece of his argument is that the Wagner Act itself, its main goals, rather than trying to limit the powers and control labor, was really to boost the powers of collective bargaining. And that today we have this really shitty act and all these terrible labor laws that you know bog us down. But none of those things are intrinsic to the original Wagner Act itself. Um, those are just the consequence, I guess, of, uh, I don't know, <laughs> I guess, terrible history that that got us this way, a zigzag path. So, okay. I want to hear first, if you have any clarifications, if you think that summary is missing something from Blanc's original essay, please share. But I would like to just hear your response to that general line of argument. Yeah, no, I think you summarized it very well. So that was my reading of his uh, uh, argument as well. Yeah, and I think in the in the post that I responded to that his explanation of the Wagner Act, it was first odd for me to hear him say that you know it wasn't just labor and labor militancy that generated the the Wagner Act response, but it was also government. You know, I don't I don't know why anyone would think otherwise, right? I mean, no 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 piece of legislation ever passes without you know, without uh, government support, you know, uh, uh, friendly government support, right? So I don't think people are saying it was solely, exclusively labor militancy. I think what, uh, you know, that argument like from Michael Goldfield and others are saying is that it's just, it's unusual, right? We normally expect legislation to be passed by legislators who are supportive of whatever social movement or social cause, you know, they're responding to. But what was unique about the Wagner Act, it was, you know, substantial, sustained, huge pressure from below that actually motivated the legislators to maybe do something 
different than they would have otherwise done. You know, that's sort of the first part. You know, I think it's just kind of a tw- kind of a weird, twisted misreading that Blanc makes of the literature there. Um, and I think that's what people are, are really saying when they when they emphasize labor militancy, not that it was the exclusive cause, but that it was somewhat unique in addition to the normal factors we um, we think of when we think of legislation being passed. Normal factors being, you know, things like uh, that there has to be a government that's in favor of, of passage of the act. So, yeah, so I think that's kind of the, the first part. The second part is, I, I mean, that's also weird too, right? I mean, he wants to say that basically that, you know, the reason we have this terrible, awful, like you said, shitty labor law now is uh, is completely contingent, right? It was a, sort of a random accident that there was, it wasn't, it wasn't baked into the Wagner Act that we got the result that we have now. I think that's a little more interesting of an argument. It's a little bit, uh, the response to it, I think, requires a little more care. But the most surprising thing to me is he, and he seems to admit that, you know, it's kind of the, the, that the rot set in within three years after the Wagner Act's passage. So when you get sort of that, you know, consistently bad results over that period of time, it's hard to, it's hard to argue that the bad labor law that we have is somehow just completely external to the act itself, right? And, it, you know, if you look at the act, it's very clearly, you know, it says right there in the preamble of the statute, it's findings and purposes, I think, if I'm remembering right, the title of the stat- in the statute itself, you know, it's meant to encourage labor peace and limit labor disputes, right? And so, you know, right from the get-go, the premise of the Wagner Act is that it's essentially this kind of third party, the government, acting as sort of this, quote-unquote, neutral arbiter of labor disputes in an uh, effort to avoid strife, to avoid strikes, really, right? Uh, I should clarify, you know, it, it acknowledges that there will be disputes between labor and management, but the idea is that they should be resolved in a, quote-unquote, peaceful manner and that, you know, we should avoid strikes and and other kinds of more militant, you know, what we think of as more militant labor actions. So again, so it's not surprising, I think, that uh, that that we've, you know, we've got the history that we've had with the with the Labor Act, and it's turned out to be one that's relatively not very helpful for labor. And then I think more fundamentally, too, I just, I, you know, so does that mean there could be a better labor law? You know, I'm even I'm even skeptical of that premise. It seems like seems like once you accept a role for government in labor relations, pro labor or anti labor, there isn't. It's necessarily going to be anti labor to the extent that it substitutes for labor, even if sort of the end goals are the same. You know, even if you want better wages, better working conditions for work uh, for workers, right? If it's the government doing that, you know, I, you know, kind of my, and this is, this goes to more to my counterfeit liberty piece. You know, if you want the government sort of generating those outcomes, you know, what role, what role is there for labor? I don't understand uh, why you would, once you accept a strong role for government in labor relations, I don't understand why you wouldn't even, even need labor unions to begin with, right? Just have, <laughs> just have the government set the wages. Right, pass a statute that regulates wait, you know, hours, wages, working conditions. I mean, this is kind of the road that we've gone down, right? You have OSHA, you have the Fair Labor Standards Act, all these things essentially 
do what union's supposed to do. You know, and so kind of depending on your view of government and capitalism, that may be a good thing. You may you may think, well, you know, as long as we get the right, the good outcomes, you know, then uh, then you know, okay, okay, maybe we don't need labor unions. But if you're someone like me, who views labor unions as a path to maybe a society outside of capitalism, outside of a state that kind of dictates how people should live their lives, then. Uh, and that's not a very attractive possibility. That's really interesting to me, the kind of your concluding thoughts there about evaluating labor based on how much labor freedom we have versus how many labor rights we want. And I think that that's where your counterfeit liberty article like mostly digs into. And what um, surprises me today about a lot of, you know, Joe Burns calls them labor liberals. And I, I don't know that Blanc himself would appreciate being thrown into that camp, but I mean, he is. Uh, he's who's Joe Burns is talking about their perspective on like what needs to be done today and the role of the state and law and progressive politicians is so divorced from even like the early conservative business unions, like the AFL in the early 20th century. Like I'm remembering Christopher Tomlin's account of the early AFL's response and attitude towards the Wagner Act. And the predecessor, uh, NERA, I believe that stands for National Industrial Recovery Act. And by today's standards, they would almost be considered like a syndicalist, like anti-statist. Like they absolutely did not want, even, this is the business unions. We're not talking about like the IWW or like the early CIO or the Communist Party. The business unions were like, fuck the government. They should not have any say in how we operate internally, what we do. And we do want this position of freedom from the state. And that's just, it seems like it's very absent today. I don't know. I know that opens up kind of a meandering conversation, but I wonder what you think about that. And and actually, you draw a lot of comparison to like the Nordic models of labor relations, because people like labor liberals often point to that as like something better. But in your analysis, you point out that they're actually getting it completely wrong, that more what they've accomplished is a, a regime of labor freedom rather than labor rights. So just meandering, but throwing it back to you on that. No, I think that's absolutely right um, about the, especially about the AFL. Howard Kimmeldorf has a book. I can't, I'm not remembering the name, but he, he, he basically comes to that conclusion. I think he even calls like the early F AFL a syndicalist, right? You know, there, there's, there's kind of been this late, you know, there's sort of another line of research that, uh, you know, different from Tomlin's. I'm thinking of like uh, William Forbath's law and the shaping of the American labor movement. That line of research sort of brands the AFL as voluntarist, kind of with the implication that, you know, that they're, they're anti-statist and that simply by virtue of that, they are sort of regressive and conservative uh, and their methods are wrong and, and not, you know, not workable. But like I said, you know, Howard Kimmeldorf, I think he's looking at in a, a couple of places, dock workers and then also restaurant workers, dock workers, maybe even in Philly, if I'm remembering right. And then restaurant workers in New York City and how they had both kind of started as AFL unions, but that they at other at, at points, they switched to the Wobblies, to the IWW. And I kind of if I'm remembering right, he, he, he emphasizes sort of the continuity between those two camps rather than the differences, right? We often think of them as, as very different, but kind of the underlying similarities with this, he, he calls it syndicalism, right? It's this idea that workers should themselves 
you know, sort of take charge in protecting themselves in in establishing a, a no, uh, you know, an, an entirely new political economy, if you want to call it that, of, of work and, and, and labor relations. Main point there is I think you're right to, to see the, the sort of the, the virtues uh, of the old kind of the AFL perspective. That's not to say, right, the AFL also had lots of separate problems, right? Uh, they tended to be racist and very fragmented and exclusive, and they had a whole bunch of other problems. But, right, they're Kind of the the um, the virtuous side is the fact that they did think that they wanted the government to have you know a, a much more limited role in labor relations. So yeah, it is it is it is ironic that uh, some of these writers have kind of forgotten that history. And and uh, I think it's because of this other line of scholarship, like from William Forbath, who have successfully kind of painted the AFL as just wholly bad, right, and, and all, along every dimension, and that the 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 fundamental contrast is market versus state, right? So if you don't like the outcomes of the market, then the only really alternative is state regulation, right? Which again, I think forgets an entire history, including the AFL, but also especially the Knights of Labor, the Wobblies, that sort of, I would say, had a third perspective, right? Which was, you know, if you want to call it, you know, socialism or communism or the cooperative commonwealth, right? Was kind of the the phrase that the Knights of Labor used, right? It was it was neither state nor market, right? It was this sort of a more democratic, self-regulating collective to the extent that it needed to be collective, but you know, so an anti-statist as well. So that's yeah. So that kind of that that's those are my thoughts in the your first part. On the second part, the Nordics, yeah. I mean, again, it, it blows my mind. People just think that because you know in Sweden taxes are high. And there's a lot of, you know, sort of fiscal redistribution, then that must mean that labor unions also have a very highly regulated state-backed form of labor relations. And just everything I've looked at says that that's not true, right? You know, so, I'm, you know, I'm not from there. There's always kind of on the, the first pushback I get is, like, you know, maybe, you, Professor Dimmick, you're just kind of stuck in your... American mindset, but <laughs> you got to go live in Sweden for a year to to read their laws. <laughs> right, right. But everything I've seen suggests it's very, um, you know, the the state is really at, at a distance. Uh, you know, it's, again, it's not to say that the state is totally absent, but I think people would be very surprised at the, uh, you know, how limited the state's role is in in labor relations in. In Norway, in Sweden, in Denmark, Finland, most of those uh, Nordic countries that liberals uh, like. Again, that's not to say, you know, that those regimes are ideal on every measure. You know, it's, it's they're very centralized, which I am personally very, very torn about. Um, I think centralization of labor relations in part, right, it kind of part reflects, you know, kind of a deal, an ideal of one big union, right, where where. Instead of, you know, all these little fiefdoms and fragmented um, labor unions kind of fighting each other for turf and kind of, you know, only kind of worrying about their own situation and not about workers in other parts of the economy. You know, in Norway, it's very centralized and that allows that, you know, that sort of prevents that kind of fragmentation from happening. On the other hand, you know, because it's so centralized, it tends to be more top down, right? It tends to be more. Um, uh, you know, just the peak union 
and the peak employers association kind of setting the terms for everything. It doesn't leave a lot of room for sort of bottom up uh, work. You know, it clearly seems to have delivered the goods in the sense that, you know, wage inequality is lower. The role of unions is, is there's no question that unions played a very influential role in, in achieving all of those kind of nice welfare state goodies, right? And sort of, you know, it wasn't just, again, I think people just think, well, they just have strong political parties and those political parties were able to win elections and bash the right and and get high taxes. I mean, there's certainly, you know, truth to that story, but there's another part of the story, which is that strong unions and employers sort of, you know, they were, it was, they found it beneficial to both to sort of offload a lot of the costs instead of building it into the wage relation, you know, like we, like we've done in the United States for so long, right. To provide, for example, health insurance through, through the employment relationship, which is, has all kinds of problems, right? Employers and unions in Sweden were saying like, hey, let's let's take this out of the the collective bargaining context. Let's just let the government pay for this. That accounts for a lot of the 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 growth of the welfare state. So even if you think the state is is ultimately our best weapon to fight against capital, right? Even even I think the the Nordic story is that you you need strong, independent, autonomous unions to get there. And kind of bringing it back to the the states, I wanted to just talk a little bit about, you know, I'm an organizer in the labor world. And uh, these lines of arguments about the Wagner Act and what it affords us and being like a gift to labor and yada, yada, yada. Uh, I find they really fly in the face of like my typical day-to-day experience, even at the level of like when I first meet workers. So like when I first meet workers, so much of my task, immediate task, is to disabuse them of the belief that the law is going to save them. I I think I'm kind of like a cartoon character sometimes talking about it because I I always say over and over, look, labor law sucks. Let's just get that out right now. It's like my first talking point. Like we're not going to do anything that like tries to get resolutions through the labor board. In fact, this is like a motto of all organizers. If you can Void the board, do it at all costs. Never let your disputes get to the board. Like try to get recognition on a voluntary basis if that's even what you're going for, all of that. But the reason is because folks come to me, individual workers, and their whole lives, they've been kind of indoctrinated with this belief system that they have rights, that they have labor rights, that these there's powers that exist, that if they just you know invoke them like a magic wand, it like gets bad bosses to calm down and obey. And I'm like, I wish that things really worked out that way. But that is like, absolutely absurd. Like, in fact, even like bosses that don't have any familiarity with the labor board or labor law, they learn pretty quickly that it's nonsense, and that they can drag their feet and just, you know, break the law as much as possible, violate it over and over, and that they'll be better if we prefer that arena of struggle rather than the workplace. And so that's just a, a little bit of day-to-day anecdotes. But I really think it goes back to the act itself and this kind of central premise behind it that what it's really doing is affording labor rights. And your question is, like, how much is that actually a good thing? So when we have labor rights, like the Wagner Act itself, how does that shift the terrain of struggle in your mind? Like, what does that do to the labor movement at large? I know it's a big question, but I wanted to kind of get it back focused on the Wagner Act specifically and how it's created consequences for organized labor in the States. 
Yeah, they kind of. The, I guess if I could sum it up very succinctly, I think when the government establishes labor rights, it always kind of substitutes itself for a worker's own self-activity. You have to distinguish kind of the the method or means of achieving whatever you're trying to achieve as a labor movement, right? If you're, again, better wages, better work schedules, better working conditions, you know, shorter hours, whatever it is, right? You have to distinguish those outcomes from the means. Again, kind of the syndicalist vision, right, is that the means are, it's it's workers. It's workers themselves. It's their ability to withhold their labor that's going to, it provides the power the means to uh, put pressure on the employer to concede to those, to those, to again, whatever the ends are, whatever labor movements want. And rights always are, are essentially a different kind of means. So think about it. You know, like you said, if you want recognition, right, you can strike for recognition and demand that the employer recognize you, right? You could see that as a first step, right? It's just at least let's get us the, the employer to recognize our existence. What does the Wagner Act do? It provides a right to a, a government-supervised election that will, if the union prevails by 50, 50% plus one of the vote in the government-recognized bargaining unit, the government will certify the union and say, we've, you know, now the employer, you have a duty to recognize the labor union. So it becomes a whole different method, a whole different means of achieving union goals. And inevitably, I think those means will come to limit the government means, the government established means through labor rights will come to substitute or limit or curtail means that other means that uh, self-help means that unions have traditionally used to achieve their goals. And again, using the example of recognition, that's exactly what has happened, right? So strikes for uh, for recognition are essentially uh, illegal under the Wagner Act. It's a little more complicated than that, but it's <laughs> but the the fact that it's complicated doesn't really help the, the argument the other way, right? It, right? It's you know if you try to read the statute and and determine the conditions when it's actually okay to strike for recognition, it's so complicated, you know, even labor lawyers with years of experience uh, find that language so convoluted and contradictory. Well, that's to your that's to your point. Like, I just want to pause on that because I think that really illustrates your point very well is that navigating labor relations requires you practically to become like a legal scholar. Like you have to interpret this like convoluted mess of regulations and policies and like, you know, judicial precedent and interpretation to where even knowing when you have the right to do a particular activity becomes incredibly cumbersome. Like, can you strike for recognition? That question seems like it should be straightforward, but it's not because of the Wagner Act specifically. Yeah. So you could say, right, that is one effect of sort of legalizing or creating rights is that just by themselves, right? They kind of have this chilling effect because it's always complicated. You always have to read and understand the statute and then the whole case law that's developed from it uh, to know whether, you know, what you can do is allowable or not. Kind of one other thing you were saying too is there's kind of to, to, to kind of zoom out a little bit. I think I don't really do this in the, I, I, I try and stay very focused in that counterfeit liberty piece, but to kind of, to, to zoom out, I think since the New Deal, since kind of this great society, this is sort of where that, you know, like you were saying, workers just kind of have this expectation, look, I must have rights. It must be wrong for the employer to be doing what they're doing, right? 
I think, you know, again, for whatever, whatever good you want to say came from the New Deal and the Great Society, and I'm not saying it was all bad, but I think that did create a culture, uh, an expectation of rights that itself inhibits labor activity, right? Because again, you know, it's like, why do I have to, why do I have to do anything, right? Why do I have to, why should I expect to uh, organize with my workers when, you know, I should just be entitled to this right, right? Uh, without any fuss or muss. So when I think about questions like, you know, why, you know, when, are, are we going to have another labor resurgence like we had in the 1930s? You know, what has prevented something like that from happening? I think labor law is partly to, partly to blame, right? Because it's sort of contributed to this culture of sort of, that's, I call it a culture of dependence on the state, right? The expectation that the state is just going to do everything and workers don't have to don't have to struggle on their own to uh, get what they want or deserve. Yeah, I mean, it seems daunting to me too to imagine the conditions today that would enable like a real resurgence like in the early 20th century. Um and I I agree. I think a lot of that comes down to like I feel like the state is just more expansive and powerful than it used to be. Like I, that this is my point of mind. Like I think a lot of people underestimate how the state in the early 20th century, at least, was not a full hegemony yet. Like it didn't really have all these institutional practices and policies of governance and control, specifically over unions, but over like the concept of rights. A lot of these things are very novel. And I think that today, the consequence is the state, contrary to like all the claims to the otherwise, the state is way more powerful today and has the role of being able to intervene in many more arenas of struggle than prior. Um, I think what people say when they think the state is like weaker or ossifying is all the good things that the state can do. Like they're seeing like the welfare state being eroded. And I agree, you know, uh, that's true. But that doesn't mean like the powers of the state, the powers of like police, powers of like having a monopoly for violence, all those things, as well as judicial and administrative powers, those have like profoundly increased. And I feel like that's the real stranglehold on us today. So I guess we have to pass the PRO Act, right? Isn't that the uh, <laughs> the first step? I mean, I guess I in uh, as a serious question, like what what do we need to do today? Like what what prospects does the PRO Act and things like that really offer us in terms of like seeing a revitalization of labor? And if not that, like how do we achieve this regime of freedoms rather than rights that you've identified give us an advantage? So I will I will admit there are you know there are a couple of good provisions in the PRO Act. It uh, I think it would eliminate the ban on secondary strikes and secondary boycotts. It all it would also get rid of that uh, ban on on um, striking for recognition, the ban on uh, recognition in uh, organizing strikes. And so those parts of it are are good. I will admit right. And they do they they do move us back those at least those provisions move us back toward a more kind of labor freedoms perspective rather than a labor rights uh, perspective. But you know there's a lot of other stuff in the Pro Act as well, right? I mean it's 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 kind of weird. It's it's kind of a the Pro Act when you read it it just sort of reads like a like a wish list of everything that labor has wanted you know for the past whatever you know number of decades and. Some of that, like I said, some of that is good. Some of it is not so good. I can't remember. It's been a while since I've looked at the ProRag. I can't remember if it has, like, for example, mandatory uh, interest bargaining in the case of a for a first contract. Is that you? I don't remember if that provision is in there. 
I don't know if that one specifically is either. That again, I mean, that's that's if that's in there, that was it was that was definitely in the you know the earlier iteration of labor law reform in the employee was it the Employee Free Choice Act, the one that Obama was sort of <laughs> mildly promoting. I think it's in the Pro Act too, but I just can't remember. Um, that goes in the opposite direction, right? That's exactly again, you know, let's not use strikes or workers' concerted self activity. To achieve these goals, let's, you know, if the government is dragging their heel or the, if the employer is dragging their heels, dragging their feet on a first contract, let's just have, you know, let's just kick it over to the government for mandatory interest arbitration for a first contract. Right. And, you know, let's up the penalties for labor law violations. Again, those are essentially just substitutes for labor's own activity. And to the extent that they work, they will crowd out workers own activity and create continue to kind of create this this culture of sort of rights and expectations that the, the government will do everything so yeah so the it's a very mixed bag and i just don't ever see even if i can't see the pro act being passed in that form right i mean it's so one-sided mm-hmm. to labor's interest you have to sort of presume that employers are are just going to step back and and not <laughs> and, and let this thing pass as it's been written and not have a say or any influence in the outcome, right? You know, if the pressure is on employers for change, even if it's in a direction that they don't want. So, you know, for employers don't want mandatory interest arbitration, but they are absolutely going to take that over uh, uh, something that liberalizes the, all the limitations on strikes, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right, because they what they what do they want? They want the production to keep running, and mandatory interest arbitration is great for that. Right, let's just <laughs> let's not have strikes. Let's keep the let's keep the machines running, and let's uh, kick this over to the government to hammer out an agreement. Right, so you know, so again, that's not the employer's ideal world. But if again, if there's enough pressure on them, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna sh- they're gonna channel this. They're gonna shape the legislation in a direction that will at least you know, minimize the cost to them and, 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 and get labor law again in a form that's more conducive to, you know, I don't want to, I don't know if you want to call it your, their long-term interests or their more, their, uh, the more fundamental interests. Right. But, you know, bottom line is let's not, let's not do anything that encourages strikes. Right. It's funny. It's you just, every time, you know, a democratic president gets elected, you just see these people like, Oh, now we can finally pass legislation. It never happens. <laughs> it yeah. never happens. There's a reason for that. Right. I mean, we should probably stop expecting uh, that to happen and look for other solutions. Yeah. A friend of mine, I I'm forgetting who mentioned this to me, but, um, or made this joke to me, but he mentioned like, it's almost as if they think, it's easier to get laws passed than presidents elected. You know, and he's talking about like Bernie Sanders supporters and stuff like Sanders lost twice. And nevertheless, the same group of folks that thought believed that they could get them elected and failed twice. Uh, they still imagine you can get laws passed. And he's like, no, the election is actually the lower benchmark of success. Like this notion is total fantasy that we're actually going to get these like sweeping progressive laws passed with like a Biden or an Obama. So I think he's really on to something there because it is true. It's like, I I mean, I, I guess a lot of it in fairness to folks is like, we're just desperate for wins. And I think in our desperation, we kind of ample like meander around for anything we can get our hands on. So it's it seems like it's just like a gasping wish list and desire of labor liberals and like union officials to just get something through. 
something to point to of like, this is now we have some possibilities. Now the horizon is opening up. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, electing Bernie Sanders seems somewhat out of the box, right? But, but, to, but, 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 but doable. I think people sort of latch onto that as a more realistic path. Uh, but like you said, yeah, that's the low bar, right? <laughs> that almost never guarantees the president's going to be able to pass their desired package of reforms, you know, whatever that is. You know, I think another thing, too, is, you, you know, if you think about the Democratic Party, it's not just sort of a reflection of values or progressive ideals or whatever, but as itself sort of a, an organization with interests of its own. Right. I think labor law reform is always going to be at the bottom of the list. Right. Why? Because they, they, you know, the Democrats want to take they don't want to empower an actor, the labor movement, who can hold them to account. Right. They don't know. No one wants to be, you know, under someone else's thumb. No one wants to be uh, no one wants to owe anything to anyone else. Right. In this in this very cynical, crass world that we live in. Right. So the Democrats are not going to empower uh, an organization that can that can that, you know that can place some limitation on their own sort of independent agenda, whatever that is, right? Democrats love to you know in order to get the labor vote, of course they'll say, yeah, we'll pass uh, we'll pass legislation. But when it comes time to actually set the legislative agenda, I think labor law reform is going to be at the bottom of the list because you know they'd rather just do you know increase taxes and write checks, whatever you know even in even you know even even to the extent that that's good, right? But they they want to be they want to get all the credit, right? They don't want to empower another social actor who who will hold the allegiance of of voters or workers, whoever you know, in whatever capacity where uh, they see themselves. This always ends up happening on the show. He started like really like highlighting all the cynicism and the <laughs> and the pitfalls, and then you end up being like, all right, well, what do we uh, talk about now? Because I guess we're stuck. But and kind of. Going back again to like today and what are the available options to us? The reason I'm asking this is because in your conclusion to the article and responding to Blanc, you do mention that you feel like there's a couple other ways that we should be analyzing our situation today that go beyond just like looking at labor law. And that one of them is like union's own organization, their internal organization is probably more responsible for our weaknesses and fragmentation today than labor law itself. And then two, that, you know, the way we measure union strength today primarily rests on like notions of union density and like sectoral coverage, things like that. Like how much do we have this sector of the economy controlled? How much density do we have? And you suggest that while those may be important, they're probably not as important of like coming up with metrics for measuring how much the labor movement is capable of independent initiative, creative actions, you know, and um, and being able to strike. So in thinking about those two items, like unions internal organization, and as well as like unions starting to operate more through independent initiative, do you see any of that happening today? Or do you have any like places where you see like the labor movements kind of opening up a path that we can start realizing these aims or, or see changes in internal organization for the positive? I do see some of that. And if I thought longer, I could probably come up with more examples. But the first one that comes to mind is is the fight for 15 movement. Right. And again, we could, you know, there's lots of criticisms to be made of that movement. Right. But, you know, one virtue of it is that it's like, you know, we're not going to just going to try to organize this one McDonald's right <laughs> among the I don't know how many McDonald's stores there are. 
right? It's like, no, let's take let's let's make this about all uh, minimum wage workers in the fast food industry. So I think that's bold. It's definitely going outside of the of the Wagner model, which again is premised. Well, like you know, well we've got this one shop, right, which is really hot. And, you know, there's a lot of this one McDonald's or this one Starbucks. There's a lot of sympathy for the union here. So let's let's just hold an election here. And this will be, you know, I think the way that, that uh, people think about that as a positive is just it's at least kind of a foot in the door. Right. If we just win this one shot, then that'll that'll help create a precedent for other. And again, to 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 their credit, you know, you you have seen some of that in in the Starbucks. Right. Um, you've you know, once they kind of there was kind of a. A movement rolling, right? I I worry about how much more steam it's got in it, and in the fact that you know Starbucks just seems to be perfectly capable and legally able to just drag their feet, right? But anyway, going back to fight for fifteen, I think again, right? You know, that's that's it's it's more focused on the outcome, less on just winning an election, and it's directed at a much broader sector of workers. So there too, you know, it's really hard for me to see what the outcome is going to be like. It seems like, you know, the last I looked at that closely, you know, kind of the direction it was going was I think people wanted to kind of hook this up with a sort of a, a government form of sectoral bargaining. Right. So New York, I think New York State and California, they may be the only two or may, maybe New Jersey has this, too. I can't remember. But at least New York and California have this state legislation for in New York, they call them wage boards. The governor basically appoints a public official, and then there are representatives from uh, labor and business, and they basically kind of hammer out what the minimum wage is going to be for whatever sector the governor designates. And so the there was some connection, if I'm not mistaken, between the fight for 15, at least in New York State, and Governor Cuomo was able to uh, set up one of those wage boards. First time it had been done in a while, I think, or at least one time a month. Uh, I think there were maybe some other recent times, but for a long time, like, that had, that legislation had been dormant. And so, yeah, they were able to basically get a significant right increase in the minimum wage for workers in the, fa- in the fast food industry in particular. So that's interesting, right? And again, there's you could I think there are lots of to avoid extra cynicism, there are lots of criticisms to be could be made, but I think that the positive side shows a willingness to think outside the traditional, fragmented on the on kind of the labor organization side. It's like you know, let's think just beyond our narrow sort of organizational uh, silos, and and think in a think at a in a in a broader level, and it's and it's thinking about outside of the the Wagner model. Again, you know, there are probably things I would have done differently in that kind of campaign, but it's you know, at least at least it's it's a sign of uh, different thinking. Something I think for it's forgotten with the Wagner Act is that you know you mentioned earlier it really constrains like what you're allowed to even have in terms of a bargaining unit, like who is allowed to be represented by this specific union, and so it's effectively undermined or even almost made illegal the concept of industrial unionism. Like you're not really able to organize industrially. If all you're doing is able to like organize shop by shop or specific, you know, units within a workplace, even if it is an industrial workplace. And what I hope is possible and what, you know, as an organizer myself, I try to do is try to approach organizing through a lens of industrial organizing, despite the limits of the Wagner Act. Like even if you're trying to win recognition and collective bargaining agreements, yeah, okay, those things come down to 
you're pretty limited because you're only going to be able to get those signed for like discrete units. But you don't have to organize that way. You can pull these shops together. You can pull fast food workers together across companies and locations geographically, production side versus retail side. Like you can organize that way. And by doing so, maybe start forcing a situation where labor law itself has to start bending and changing, maybe like allowing more freedoms. But I don't know. I guess it's an open question. It seems like it really does come down to more like what are unions going to do today? And how are they going to approach their organizing campaigns? Are they going to continue to just believe blindly, like almost like it's a a religious faith in the law will simply allow us to win? Or are we going to actually start like seeing that, you know, these doctrines don't hold up and we need to start going back to some of our early traditional roots of unionism? Yeah, that's the it's a million dollar question. Let me start with your kind of the first thing you said. There's I mean, there's actually there's been the the board has gone back and forth about this issue of, you know, the size of bargaining units. And what is kind of sort of viciously ironic is that larger units, which on the one hand would seem to be, you know, more in line with sort of an industrial organizing philosophy, those tend to favor employers because uh, you because because just because of the nature of the organizing kind of kind of has to start somewhere, right? There's usually a group of workers maybe just a fraction of a workplace who are more, who have been more radicalized or whatever, whatever you want to call it, more militant than other sections of the workforce, right? Because this, this development is a totally uneven process. And so, you know, so the painful fact is if you designate a larger unit, it'll often lose because it's only really a, a, a section of the workforce that's really amped up to do anything. And, you know, understandably, the union and the board are sort of eager to at least you know, give them some recognition so they can, for them, for these small group of workers, get something out of joining a union. But then that is, that's, uh, so, so currently the doctrine prevails that, you know, smaller units are okay. And it's, it's rationalized in that kind of way that it is more, it does give workers kind of the, the print, the labor law principle is, is, is this idea of freedom of choice that workers, if they want to join a union, they should be allowed to. If they don't want to join a union, they shouldn't be forced to either. But the idea is if we make a smaller union, that'll allow the workers that want to join the union to join. The workers that don't care, they don't have to, they don't have to join. But sort of even so that's, you know, it's sort of this really bitter irony that it's actually kind of a, you know, quote unquote, pro-labor policy. But the the result, the consequence is that it does totally undermine any broader industrial type of organizing. And it uh, and it. Yeah, like you said, it totally contributes to the fragmentation of of the labor movement. And then kind of to go to your other point, you know what you know, what what can labor do? I, I, I'd love to say I was optimistic as I was 10 or 20 years ago, but it's it's getting harder and harder to uh, to maintain my optimism. I will say the openings now seem, you know, as, as, as mixed signals as they are, right? The openings are more, more hopeful now than, than they've been in, in a long time, right? You're seeing more activity, still nowhere near the level we need it to be, but you're, 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 you're starting to see more interest. Uh, the Starbucks thing is, I think, on the whole, a positive development and uh, yeah, I think we can only hope that, yeah, they'll see that, you know, just waiting for the board to do something, staying within the law is not going to actually deliver the results. And um, so to get change, you know, there's legislation 
But there's also just defiance of bad law, right? I mean, if you look at the 30s, that's what workers were doing. Mm -hmm. I think ultimately, workers are going to have to realize that uh, change is not going to come through the ballot box, at least initially. You know, I'm, I, try, I try to keep an open mind about this. But even, even when I'm putting the, you know, the, pot, the most positive spin I can on the state, right, social change usually just does not begin there, right? It has to come from below. And that may require workers to openly defy all, some of these specific, you know, these restrictions on strike activity that are making it harder for them to get what they want at the bargaining table, organize across uh, these silos, these boundaries. And I think, you know, there's so in, in between legislation and just kind of defiance of the law, there is there is room, I think, at the board to get some change in the doctrine. Again, that's that wouldn't be my preferred method, but if you know, again, if you can't get you can't elect Bernie to to presidency, and you can't get the legislation passed. You can try and you can try and you know make some changes at the board level to at least limit sort of the worst limitations on labor freedoms there. So yeah, that's kind of the best sort of prognosis I can give. I think. Well, um, I think we should end it here, and I want to you know based on what you're saying, I want to give the final line to a worker leader. I've had the pleasure of organizing with for the past year, they always say, uh, Rachel is their name, be gay, do crime. And I think that's the lesson here. So <laughs> for everybody listening, there you go. But our guest has been Matthew Dimmick, professor of law at the University of Buffalo. They've written some great pieces on organizing work, including not just one on the labor law, but also on strike activity. I thought that was a really good piece too. And also for Catalyst Magazine, Counterfeit Liberty. Listeners to go check those out. We'll keep it in our show notes too. Thank you so much, Matthew, for coming on Labor Wave. Thank you for having me. <laughs>